Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I'm going to invite you to go to John chapter 6, or sorry, John chapter 10. John chapter 10 with me. You know, as we get into John chapter 10, it took some time when I got back from my own holiday through August to kind of preach three one-off sermons, and now I'm back into the gospel of John. We're basically at the hinge of the gospel of this first century biography of Christ by the Apostle John, who was called the beloved disciple, or the one that he is the disciple of love and truth, and uh, really to put the whole gospel into a series, I titled it Conversations with Christ, and that's because of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospels. Um, The gospel of John includes more dialogue, more conversation between Jesus and individuals than any other of the other three Gospels combined. And if you want to know much of the words of Jesus, you read the Gospel of John. And the truth is, you know, when you grow up and you feel like you're called to ministry and you go to Bible college or seminary, they tell you certain things. And one of the things is that before you preach, you've got to be gripped by whatever it is you're going to preach before you can tell other people about it. And I have to be honest, you take that stuff seriously in Bible college, you take it seriously when you get into the ministry, but then sometimes you can just get into the routine. You can do the things of preaching and preparation and church life and all the things that go with it, but then God in his mercy just gives you a shock to your system. He, he does something to you that maybe you weren't even expecting, and for me, John chapter 10 has been that. So I have to tell you here, I'm going to watch the clock. I'm going to stop at a reasonable time so we can close with our closing song and get our closing announcements and benediction in. But the truth is, I don't even know where to begin with this chapter because I have loved this chapter so, so much. In fact, my greatest frustration is how to tell you everything that God has been showing me. I only want to look at verses 1 to 6. We're probably not going to get through it. I've put a title to my sermon, which is, The Lord is my shepherd. And then I put the acronym, Is He? The Lord is my shepherd, but is He? And for some of you, maybe you'll know this, um, I love listening to old-time preachers, and one of my favorite old-time preachers is a guy by the name of Dr. S.M. Lockridge. He was an African-American preacher in the United States, and he preached sermons of sheer poetry. You know this name, even though you might not recognize it, because two segments of his sermons have been made famous videos that have traveled social media, YouTube and Instagram and Facebook and all these things. And you'll know why in a minute, because two of them I've shown here at Calvary. One is, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And already I can see some of your faces. You've heard or seen that video The other one is, that's my king. I have to tell you, I can listen to those videos over and over and over again. Now, that's my king is the more popular of the two videos, and that's because uh, he often uses that refrain, that's my king, and he's just sheer word poetry. But the refrain he uses almost as much as that's my king is this one, do you know him? Do you know him? And that's why I titled my sermon, The Lord is my shepherd, but is he? Do you know him? Today we're going to begin a journey. I have no idea how long it's going to take me to get what through what I believe is one of the most incredible chapters of the Bible. In John chapter 10, 
Jesus will use not one, but two of his seven great I am statements. The Gospel of John is all built around seven great signs and seven great I am statements. And I want to say up front, without a doubt, John chapter 10 is also of tremendous comfort and controversy. Because without a doubt, this chapter more than any other chapter of the Gospels and of John's Gospel, is going to deal with Jesus' life and his words. But most importantly, Jesus will deal with this controversial subject in the modern evangelical church, maybe not for us here at Calvary, but it is controversial because he deals with eternal security. He actually will deal with the idea of being backslidden. You have words like carnal. What do you do when sin is in your life? Can you have salvation and lose it again? And he will challenge unbelievers in this chapter. He will comfort a new Christian in this chapter. He's going to teach and instruct his disciples in this chapter. And he's going to display himself to a crowd in this chapter. He does so by using a series, three actually, of allegorical type parables, illustrations. He's going to commonly use the illustration of shepherding and sheep. He'll call himself the door. He'll say, I am the door. He'll use a terminology saying, I am the good shepherd. He will example that if, indeed, the Lord is your shepherd... The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is our shepherd. Then you'll see an experience and you'll trust his provision, his protection, and his proximity. In other words, you'll be in his presence. And you'll be in the presence of those who are truly his. In fact, I would go so far to say is that John chapter 10 is one of, if not the most assurance-driven chapters of the entire Bible. And herein lies the problem. Because already, many of you, when I say that the Lord is my shepherd, and I talk about him being the good shepherd, and that we are sheep, when all of I say that, you've already started to reflect on what you've heard about Jesus as the good shepherd. You've already started to go there in your mind about us as sheep, and you're thinking about perhaps verses you've heard, or chapters you've read, or even seasons of the years, particularly Christmas. Because the Bible is full of illustrations and allusions to God as shepherd and us as sheep. Many of you right now might be thinking of that famous chapter, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's likely the most famous and known passage of the Bible in the entire world today. Others of you might be thinking about Christmas And the shepherds in their field keeping watch over their flocks by night. Others of you might be thinking about Easter and the fact that there was this Passover lamb. Some of you might be all the way back to your Sunday school years and going back to Exodus when the Passover happened where that final plague hit Egypt and the Israelites were let go. Some of you are thinking about that famous passage in Matthew where he talks about the 90 and 9 and how Jesus, the the shepherd, leaves the 90 and 9 and goes and looks for that one lost sheep. See, many of you right now are conjuring up images in your head because many of you have likely seen a picture or pictures like the one that we're going to show you on the screen. I think there are different ones like this. How many of you seen pictures like this? All right, there's a lot of hands. You do this. And that's the inherent challenge for you and I as we get into a chapter like John chapter 10. 
You see, everyone here, or at least I could say this, almost everyone here, since I don't know for sure, can only imagine what it's like to be a sheep or a shepherd. You've not experienced sheep herding. You've not tended sheep. You've not really experienced what they act like. And I find that funny because we love Psalm 23. Everybody loves it. It's poetry. It's all these types of things. But I cannot tell you how many different versions I've heard from people who love or like that chapter that tell me what David meant. What's even more odd to me is that the most common usage of Psalm 23 is actually at funerals when people pass away. But I can tell you in the weeks I've spent studying John chapter 10, I'm more convinced than ever that the original, even the best spiritual intent of Psalm 23 was not to be read at funerals. It was to be read in your everyday real life. You see, if I were to say to you, just to give you an illustration why you've got to work at this, if I were to say to this audience, this crowd predominantly, something like, the mercy and grace of God rolls over us like the waves crash under the shore of Middle Cove Beach. Instantly right now, many of you in this room are conjuring up a live experience of what I'm talking about. If I said to you, the blessings of God wash upon the shore like the Capelin in late June and early July, most of you instantly know what I'm talking about, and you are fairly consistent in the application. Do you know why? Because you've experienced what I'm talking about. You've felt it. You've smelt the, the salt in the air. You've heard the crash of the waves. You've, you've actually scooped up buckets or netfuls of those silvery, shimmering little capelin and brought them home and tasted them. But not so with John chapter 10 and not so with Psalm 23. And that's why you've got to study this and you've got to read and you've got to think about this and make sure we're not only reading the passage and then applying it as we feel it or we think of it, but making sure we're actually getting the meaning with the same weight and, at the, and, and, and punch that John wants you and I as readers to get. That's why, and you've probably been sitting there waiting for me to do this since I'm back to John, he gives us his perfect statement at the end of his gospel. Remember that verse? Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. As I've told you, John hand-selected seven signs. We've just seen the sixth one in John chapter 9, which was healing the man born blind. And he says, but these, these seven I've chosen, the seventh one comes in the next chapter, John 11, which was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. He says, I've chosen these so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and here's the result, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John wants you and I to know, and I want to remind you again, these things are written, John chapter 10 is written, so that you and I may believe something. Convictionally. Actually, something you hold to, it fuels your living and your life. It gives you purpose and value and meaning and identifying. And that's what is, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And if you and I believe that, it results in something. Namely, you're going to have life in His name. Now please understand and please hear me. 
everything that you and I read in John's gospel, everything from John chapter 1 verse 1 till you get to John chapter 20 verse 30 is meant and designed for you and I to either accept or reject that purpose. Which leads me to preemptively ask, do you believe in Jesus? I don't want to take that for granted. Do you believe in Jesus? Really? As Shrek would say to Donkey, really, really? Do you believe in Jesus? What I mean is, is Jesus the shepherd of your life? It affects you. He affects you. And if you'd answer, Steve, listen, man, I don't know what got you worked up on the 1st of September, but yes, yes, I believe in Jesus. Yes, Jesus is the shepherd of my life. Then my follow-up question is this. Then are you experiencing life in his name? Are you truly experiencing life in his name? Now, I want you to take your time. Don't be flippant with that answer. It's rhetorical. You can answer that privately in your own heart and mind. Would you say, you know what, Steve? In the busyness and hustle and bustle of 2019, in September, where almost all of 2019 is gone, we are very close to Christmas. Yes, that's right. When we have this social media ultimate fast-paced world and life, are you experiencing life? I really wonder what the answer is because why are we in such a heightened time of stress and anxiety where we have next to no margin? But let me come back to that. All right, hold that thought. So before I want to jump into the passage, I want to point out a couple of really cool things about John 10 that I just have been thrilled about, because I love it when I study my Bible, and I've been around the Bible since I was five years old. I've been a pastor now for almost 25 years, and so I've been preaching sermons and studying the Bible and reading it through every year and all these types of things, and when I discover new things, it just thrills my soul, and it reminds me again that you're never going to come to the end of the Bible. You're never, ever going to feel like you got it all figured out, and that's okay because we serve an infinite God. I don't expect to figure God out. If I do, then I'm God. I love the fact that there's mystery to God. There's something mysterious about God because that's what makes him big and makes me small, which means I can trust him with my life. And did you know that John 10, as it relates to that sheep-shepherd theme, as I said to you, many of you know and can quote and have heard Psalm 23. Right now, if I were to ask you to read it with me, if I started quoting it, you would quote it with me. I know many of you personally, and I know you could do that. Maybe you've got it on the wall of your house, on a fridge, on a fridge magnet. Some of you right now might have Psalm 23 on a bookmark right in your Bibles as I am preaching to you. But step back and think about the words of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, David writes, I shall not want. Right, He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. Remember, he restores my soul. All these beautiful, beautiful words. But I don't know if you've noticed this. See, Psalm 23 is David talking about the shepherd from the point of view of being a sheep. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He puts himself in that identity as a sheep. Whereas when you come to John chapter 10, it's Jesus talking. And from this chapter, he is talking as the shepherd talks about his sheep. You see, one chapter is from the point of view of the shepherd from the sheep's eyes. 
The other chapter, chapter 10 of John, is looking at the world through the shepherd's eyes. I, I, I've never seen that before, and I just thought that was so cool, and I want you to get that. The other important issue as you read John 10 is don't ever forget the context. You're still in the same story and time frame that we ended chapter 9. So we're at the end of a feast. The man born blind, that sixth sign, he was born blind. Remember, God came and, and, and rubbed dirt and put it on his eyes and told him to go wash, and he comes back seeing, and it created quite a controversy. In fact, I think John chapter 9 is one of the most humorous chapters of the Bible because they keep asking this guy to tell him how he can see, and he keeps saying, look, what do you want me to tell you? I was blind, and now I can see, and they argue over this fact. And so when you get to the end of the chapter, you've got Pharisees and Sadducees, you've got a crowd that have gathered, the disciples, and you've got the man who's just been healed. But if you look at the end of John chapter 9, in verse 35, it says, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. That is, the Pharisees and Sadducees, because they could not get the answer from this blind man that they wanted, because he kept giving glory to Jesus as the Messiah, God in the flesh, they threw him out of the temple. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the blind man answered, Who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? I find that hilarious because he's never seen Jesus yet. Jesus talked to him, spit, made some mud, put it in his eyes and told him to go wash. He's never actually physically seen Jesus. And so here's Jesus in front of him. In verse 38, he said, Jesus, sorry, verse 37, Jesus said to him, You have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. So he said in verse 38, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. He had life, life everlasting. But notice Jesus kept speaking in verse 39. For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see me may see, and those who see may become blind. Now notice, here's the pivotal verse, verse 40. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? I want you to hear the, the taunt, the, the sarcasm. This wasn't a legit question. This was an attacking question. Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Now, what I want you to see, keep reading. Truly, truly, in verse 1, this is the same situation. There's no time lapse. Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, he's responding still to the Pharisees, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And we brought, and when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. And here's how John sums up this first engagement. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, that's the Pharisees, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Now that's the direct audience, the Pharisees, but the man born blind is there, the disciples are there, the crowd is there. These Pharisees back in chapter 9 want to know if they are indeed blind. And Jesus has already responded. But now in chapter 10, he wants you and I to know how much more that Jesus is saying. That's what John wants. 
And so as we consider for a little while these words of Christ, I might add this. I find it a bit humorous how we relate to the old, whole idea of us being sheep. If you ask most people in church, you ask most of you, if I said to you, we're like sheep, most of you go, uh-huh. And I don't really think you understand what you're admitting to when you say that. Because that's not flattering. I find, though, other people, especially people that are searching for Jesus or questioning religion or they're antagonistic to Jesus or the church, when you tell them we're like sheep, they either love it or fully reject it. And it seems like people love the idea of being a sheep without fully understanding what kind of image we're embracing, or we hate it and reject it because we think it's humiliating. And yet, without being honest, think about human behavior And then if you know anything about the study of sheep, you'll find out why the Bible uses this illustration. You see, as I've been studying for the last few weeks about this chapter, I have been reading up on sheep. And sheep are notoriously and famously known for being warm and cuddly, even innocent-like. You will never ever see a mean-looking sheep. They can't be. But they are also known to be helpless. They're known to be stubborn, and yet quite literally, you can actually, certain breeds of them, scare them to death. Literally, there is a breed of sheep that if you sneak up behind it and you scare it, it stiffens, has a massive coronary heart attack, falls over dead. That's how finicky a sheep is. They're jumpy creatures. They're creatures of habit. They wander around. They don't, some would say, or can't do well on their own. In fact, people will tell you, sheep in the wild don't survive. They need to be tended. They need to be shepherded. They're timid. They're frightened easily. And from what I've read, they are absolutely defenseless. In fact, from what I've studied of all the animals that we farm, it is said that sheep are the most difficult animal to farm. This made me laugh in my studies. Bob Smith, a one-time professor at Bethel College of Philosophy, said, The existence of sheep is prima facie evidence against the theory of evolution because there's no way sheep would have survived if it's survival of the fittest. It's okay to laugh at that. I thought that was hilarious. You see, that's why the psalmist and so many other Old Testament writers said what they did about us as sheep. Have you ever thought about it? In Psalm 100, verse 3, Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Isaiah made this bold statement about us as sheep in Isaiah 53, right? All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So it's the backdrop of this that forms our passage. We've got to overtake our minds and our imaginations to apply what Jesus wants us to get. It's what he wanted the man born blind to get and now seeing to believe. It's what he wanted his disciples to understand and embrace. And it's what he is going to challenge and even condemn the Pharisees with. So here's my point. Number one, as far as I get today, is, and you'll thank me because this is Captain Obvious stuff, the true shepherd knows his sheep. You see that in the first couple of verses. The true shepherd knows his sheep. Notice Jesus begins with this illustration. He's been challenged. Are we still blind? 
And so he challenges them at the end. He goes, look, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Now let me illustrate this. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters the door is the shepherd of the sheep. And so Jesus does this. And as the temple is the backdrop, This feast, and who knows how many sacrifices have already taken place during this particular feast and festival. It's fresh in everyone's mind. They all know, or at least understand the analogy. Now, verse 6 tells us they didn't get the meaning, but they understood the illustration. You see, the Pharisees had said, are we blind? And Jesus, all what he has already said, I think would have been humiliating enough, but he goes even further, not just for the sake of, for their sake, but for the blind man who can see and the disciples and the crowd. Jesus basically looks into the face of the corrupt religious system of the day and tells them, you're not only blind, but let me tell you what you are. You are thieves and robbers. Now this is why you've got to study this, and this is what gets a pastor excited. That word thief in the Greek is the word kleptos. It's where we get our English word for kleptomaniac. Jesus looks at these Pharisees and said, you're basically a spiritual kleptomaniac. And then he goes on, he says, worse, you're not only that, but you're also a robber. He goes, you actually don't save people or help them. You don't comfort them, much less love them. You don't feel compassion for them. You take from them and you steal their joy. You rob them of purpose and hope. You burden them with shame and contempt and you seek to destroy them and control them. And that's why he called them robbers, which means an assailant who uses violence. Jesus looks at religion and says, religion takes from you. I don't know about you, but the more I've lived again back home in Newfoundland and I talk to everyday people, that's the overwhelming description I get of religion. I'm supposed to do it. I feel shame or embarrassed that I'm not into it more. But the more I try it, the more frustrated I feel. The more burdened down I am the more I'm told to not ask questions and just accept. And again, you've heard me say many, many times, truth is never afraid of a question. Isn't it funny that Peter, who was listening to all this, talks of Satan in his letters as a lion seeking whom he may devour? Jesus labeled the Pharisees as poisonous snakes. He would later say it was like the blind leading the blind. The old Anglican minister J.C. Ryle said, the object of this was to show the entire unfitness of the Pharisees to be pastors and teachers of the Jews. Why? Because they had not taken up their office in the right spirit and with a right understanding of the work they had to do. This is what it was. Jesus was simply affirming what God the Father had said centuries earlier with Ezekiel the prophet. In Ezekiel 34 verse 2 he says, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should you not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. This is what Jesus was doing. He had good reason for saying this, because don't forget, when Jesus was born, 
These same group of Pharisees and Sadducees were summoned by Herod the Great to give an answer as to why wise men from the east had come to worship the Messiah. And when asked, this is what they said to them in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. They quote the minor prophet Micah. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler, notice, who will shepherd my people Israel. This is why this passage, I love it. What made the religious leaders even worse than simply blind was, they were willfully blind. They are false shepherds. Wolves in sheep's clothing. They're thieves and robbers. And perhaps the greatest tragedy than this condemnation to the religious leaders is the fact that the crowd listening in is also being challenged. Why do you think you are not sheep? Why do you allow yourselves to be captured and tortured by this stuff instead of coming to me? This is the invitation of Jesus. I I have to tell you, I'm loving this book by a guy named Philip Keller, who was a shepherd. And so he's written two books, one on Psalm 23 and one on John 10. And I love this. He says, we human beings allow all kinds of strange ideologies and philosophies to permeate our thinking. We'll allow humanistic standards and materialistic concepts to actually rob us of the finest values that would otherwise enrich us. We permit false aims and ambitions to penetrate our thinking and dominate our desires, scarcely aware that in doing so, we are forfeiting the richest values our good shepherd intended for us. But listen to me, church. It's not so with Jesus. He's not a thief and a robber. Jesus comes as the shepherd. He comes and enters by the door. He's let in by the gatekeeper. In coming weeks, we'll learn, not only does he enter by the door, he is the door. And oh, friends, think about what that would have meant to the disciples. What it would have meant to the man born blind. Peter would write that Jesus is the shepherd of believers' souls. Later, he would call Jesus the chief shepherd in 1 Peter 5. The writer of Hebrews, in his letter, closes with his benediction this, Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the greatest shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. See, that's someone who is living and experiencing life. And this is my challenge for you that are Christians today. See, don't you know that even into eternity, Jesus will continue to shepherd his people. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 1, it says, The Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. That's why Jesus says what he does. He calls out the religious as thieves and robbers, and he claims himself as that rightful door and shepherd. Why? why I think that healed blind man would have said, wow, that's what I've been called to. That's what I've experienced. And that's why you've got to understand what's happening here. You see, when we think of sheep tending their flocks by night, I often wonder what picture comes to your mind. 
When you hear that, which will be read in just a few months, right? We'll read Luke chapter 2 and all this all over again in Luke chapter 1. But here, in the first century, Jesus is referring to a common sheep holding area. In, outside of Jerusalem, outside of that temple, there would have been a massive general holding area where many shepherds would lodge their sheep, so to speak. They would allow them to go in. And then they'd go and make deals or do commerce in all of Jerusalem. Some would sell sheep for sacrifices. Some would simply hold them there while they went to the temple. Others might be arranging the sale of some of their sheep for breeding to other shepherds. Some were simply getting ready to shear the wool off and sell the wool. You see, John MacArthur helps us. He says, every village, including Jerusalem, in the shepherding regions of Palestine had a fold where sheep were kept at night. The shepherds would graze their flocks in the surrounding countryside during the day, then lead them back to these communal sheepfolds in the evening. And there the shepherds would stop each sheep at the entrance with their rods, carefully inspect it before allowing it to enter the fold. Once they were in the fold, the sheep were in the care of the doorkeeper, a hired under-shepherd who would keep watch over them during the night, and he would give only the shepherds access to the sheepfold. So therefore, anyone who would not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbed in by some other way, was a thief and a robber. And since the doorkeeper obviously would not let strangers in, would-be rustlers had to climb the wall of the sheepfold to get to the sheep. And only the one who entered by the door was the shepherd. And I want you to see in our passage in verses 1, 2, and 3, Jesus makes three bold claims. He claims, he and only he enters by the door, he and only he calls you by name, and he and only he leads you. So when you say, the Lord is my shepherd, okay, has the Lord entered your life? Does the Lord call you by name? Does the Lord lead you? What a contrast with religion, isn't it? What a contrast if we're honest, even with ourselves. Let's be honest. I know you enough now. I know most of you I know pretty well. Here's what I know about myself and about many of you that I love and do life with. We are gullible as people. I'm going to tell you, man, the older I get, this one statement that someone said to me, the hardest thing you'll ever do in life is be honest with yourself. We lie to ourselves over and over, and we believe lies that people tell us, and yet, amazingly, we're suspicious of Jesus. The one who came to die. The one who never lies. Hebrews tells us he can't lie. The one who only gives of his best for our best. Jesus comes to us honestly through the door that is himself. He calls us by name, knows everything about us. That's what that Romans 5, 8 verse means. Even when we were sinners, Christ died for us and he leads us. And what that means in our passage is he goes before us. He doesn't just lead us. He defends us and protects us and provides for us in that whole lead part of the passage. He always mean, means for our nourishment and our sustenance. And the shepherd goes before us to seek, protect us. See, Jesus is the true shepherd. And just like S.M. Lockridge, I want to ask, do you know him? Do you know him? Secondly, notice, the sheep know the true shepherd. The sheep know the true shepherd. Look at what Jesus says in the end of verse 3. The sheep hear his voice. Pop down to verse 4 and verse 5. The sheep 
follow him. Why? For they know his voice. See, in verse 3, it's they hear his voice. In verse 4, it's they know his voice. And then notice the negative. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. See, here, Jesus is addressing the Pharisees in particular. And this whole address is really damning and condemning, really. But what encouragement it must have been to the blind man. Look again and see what the blind man says. He goes, who is he? Christ? When Jesus comes to him and says, do you know who healed you? Do you know who is Jesus? And he says, if you know him, point him out to me. And he goes, I am he who is talking to you. And he says, Lord, I believe. And he worships him. But I want you to remember that this guy's been cast out of the temple. Feel the emotions. His whole life, born blind. He had never seen anything. He never knew what blue was. He didn't know what the temple looked like. He couldn't even imagine it. If they said, oh, it's square, he doesn't know what a square is. If they say it's rectangular or it's beautiful and gold, he's never seen gold. He doesn't know if gold is beautiful and shimmers in the sun or it's, it's beautiful to look at. He begged outside this sacred place, heard of it, heard the activities of it, likely dreamt, one day, one day I'll see it. And then that day comes only to be cast out. But then the true shepherd, Messiah, the founder and builder of the temple, the Shekinah glory of God himself is before him now telling him, follow me, listen to me, trust me. I'm better than the temple. I'm better than the law. I'm better than the sacrificial system. I'm better than anyone or anything. I'm your shepherd. I've healed you. I'll protect you. I'll provide for you. In fact, in a few short months, I'll die for you. I'll rise again for you. Is it any wonder again that S.M. Lockridge would say, do you know him? Because that's my king. But I don't know about you, but I ask myself, how do sheep hear his voice? How do sheep follow the voice of the shepherd? How do they not follow a stranger? In fact, they flee from him. Why? Because Jesus says they don't know the voice of the stranger. Philip Keller, in what he has done in one of his books, he said, this is what he says, the relationship which rapidly develops between a shepherd and the sheep under his care is to a definite degree dependent upon the use of the shepherd's voice. Sheep quickly become accustomed to their owner's particular voice. They get acquainted with its unique tone. They know its peculiar sounds and inflections, and they can distinguish it from that of any other person. If a stranger should come among them, they would not recognize or respond to his voice in the same way they would do that of the shepherd. Even if the visitor should use the same words and phrases as that of their rightful owner, they would not react in the same way. It is a case of becoming actually conditioned to the familiar nuances and personal accent of their shepherd's call. Now I want to ask you, do you know Jesus like that? Are you that familiar with Jesus that you would know his voice and you'd follow him and yet you would know when someone is calling out to you that's not the voice of Jesus? Here's my thing, folks. If you're going to know Jesus, you've got to spend proximity and time. And here's four ways. I think we must spend time in God's word privately. It doesn't have to be complicated to be profound. Let me say again, are you spending time reading the Bible not to check off a checklist, but because you actually want to know 
Jesus and what he says. I love all of you. I'll never love you like Jesus, but I do know when I talk to you and you're honest with me, the one thing that comes up over and over again is the inconsistency we all struggle with to daily spend time with God in His Word. Well, how are you going to know His voice? You see, if I don't spend time with Debbie, I don't know Debbie. But I know her because I'm married to her. I know the tone of her voice. Quite frankly, I know the rhythm of her breathing, even when she's asleep. I can tell when Debbie is truly asleep and when she's trying to go to sleep. Because after 27 years of laying next to her, I know her. I know her. But do I know Jesus privately? We must spend time in God's Word publicly. That's why you come to church. You hear people preach the Word of God. You hear it sung about. That's why we have a music team. It's not for show. It's not for pomp and circumstance. You need to hear what God's been laying on my life. I've been studying personally and privately so I can encourage you publicly. And this is where you come to spend time in God's Word publicly and we must spend time in God's Word relationally. That's why, church, you've got to have friends. You've got to have friends. And I mean real friends, Calvary. People that talk to you about God. What are you reading? What are you praying about? What are you struggling with? Stop just being yes friends. Yes. Oh, that's great. That's good. What about, is that what God would want? Are you reflecting Christ in that? And then you must spend time in God's word naturally. Naturally. You see, that's why nature is beautiful. I don't know about you, but I, I, I'm amazed by extreme weather. I really am. Thunderstorms, hurricanes, because I just see the might of God. I see the might and majesty of God. I love to look at our province. I love listening to the waves crash on the shore, and I realize, man, how amazing is our Savior. As we sang, he's more than amazing. You see, if you have been called by Jesus, then you know him. You know that Jesus doesn't drive us, but rather he tends to us. And that's why Matthew eleven twenty eight is so important. Come unto me, all that, ye la- that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. <laughs> Jesus is not hard. And that's why he said in Matthew 9, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And now you know just a little bit why this chapter has excited me. Because Jesus is the true shepherd, and true sheep know the true shepherd. And so as I pop down and end, and give you something to take home with you, and then we'll pick this up next week, here's my one big question for you this morning. If Jesus is the true shepherd, and he knows us and loves us more than anyone or anything, are you trusting him? Do you know him? The Lord is my shepherd. Is he? Richard Phillips says, Why did you become a Christian? Because Jesus called you by name? This answers the greatest need of the human soul, to be called into fellowship with God by the voice of the Savior whom he sent. You can't love yourself like Jesus loves you. You can't protect yourself like Jesus can and will. You can't even trust yourself like Jesus will treat you. Always with your best interest in mind. Always to protect you and deform you and transform you. Stop. Stop allowing yourselves or others to rob you of joy and true life. 
Calvary, listen to me. Kent Hughes says, Jesus knows us in the most profound ways. He knows our past with its failures and its hurt. He knows our presence, our present, our unrealized longing. He knows us in the most intimate ways. He knows our idiosyncrasies. He calls us by our characteristics. Hugh says, I sometimes wonder if he calls us by the things we would not want to be called. It is quite possible he affectionately calls us grumpy or fearful or faithless, just as we talk to our sheep if we were shepherds. Have you ever wondered why Walt Disney had Snow White and the Seven Dwarves? And the Seven Dwarves are sneezy and grouchy and sleepy. Did you ever notice the Smurfs in the cartoon when I was a kid and all the Smurfs had a name? And there was Smurfette and there was Strong Smurf and Grouchy Smurf. What kind of a sheep are you? What would Jesus say about you? Oh, I love Steve, but Steve is angry Smurf. Or, you know, Debbie is quiet sheep. Right? But you know what? He names us and loves us. So I want you to go from here and ask yourself, is the Lord your shepherd? And I close with this, and I'm going to do this every week for a few weeks. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His namesake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear evil, for you are with me. And your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I hope that just hearing these few challenges from the first part of John 10 has made Psalm 23 seem a whole lot different and more affectionate to your here and now. This is not a psalm for the dead. This is a psalm for the living. And will you and I live it this week? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you. And again, I beg of you, Lord, that my friends and my family, the visitors that have trusted us with their presence today, would have heard a much better sermon than I can preach. Oh God, that you would speak to your sheep, that the word of God would not return void. Lord, I pray that people will be able to take the imagery and apply it to their lives. I pray that they would know who are the thieves and robbers in their life right now, if even if it's them, that they would know that you are their shepherd and that they would know that the reason John writes this is so that we would know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that we would have life in his name. Lord, there's people here and they're hurting, struggling. Some are pretending. Some are searching. But Lord, you are the shepherd who will tend to us. Give us a profound sense of your presence because you are indeed Jesus the Messiah. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.